Hi everyone and welcome to Marketplace Jungle, where we explore the world of marketplaces beyond Amazon. Brought to you by eChameleon, I'm your host, Jesse Rag. Today's guest will be no stranger to those of you who are listening from the UK. Chris Dawson is the founder of UK's top marketplace news resource, Channel X, formerly known as Tamebay. Chris started his e-commerce journey selling on eBay as a way to make ends meet and quickly became so successful that his blog became known as the go-to place for all tips and resources for succeeding on marketplaces. In this episode, expect to learn how Chris's early days of selling on eBay led him to founding one of the biggest blogs for marketplace sellers in the world, how to protect your business from the sudden loss of a marketplace channel, whether through an account suspension or as many German sellers have recently experienced with my toys, through the news that the marketplace will close down, the pros and cons of selling on third-party marketplaces, which steps you should take when looking at marketplaces beyond Amazon, and much more. Chris, thank you so much for joining on Marketplace Jungle. It's fantastic to have you here. Great, great to be with you today, Jesse, and looking forward to the conversation. Chris, I remember my very first day in e-commerce. This might not be the story about how to onboard employees properly, but it was definitely a good onboarding into e-commerce because when working at a marketplace agency, the very first thing I was told was go to www.tamebay.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and that's it. That's all you need to know about the industry. Everything is on there. Everything that your customers, people selling on marketplaces are going to want to know, they'll be getting the same resources. You can get it on there. You can know what they need to know. You can go back through however many years of information that are sitting on Tamebay and you can figure out how this industry ticks. Appreciate that very much, Jesse. Um, I, I, I should say for those listening today that Tamebay was founded back in 2006, but more recently, about seven years ago, we were acquired by the Internet Retailing Group. So if you type them um, in tamebay.com today, you'll actually end up at channelx.world, which is the new name for the site, part of a larger rebranding for the group. So we've got Internet Retailing with their research arm, which is RetailX. We've rebranded our e-delivery platform as DeliveryX. Tamebay is now ChannelX. And we've also got a fairly new subscription-based platform, which is SubX. Um, so so we've, we've got all the Xs to do with e-commerce. And my focus is on ChannelX, which covers things like marketing and other routes to, to uh, trade with consumers. So increasingly today, that includes platforms like um, social media, messaging apps, entertainment apps. Think of the likes of Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, um, TikTok. Um, they're, they're all different routes to market. Some of them operate in a little bit like marketplaces. Others operate pretty much nothing like marketplaces, apart from the one thing, which is you've got a product to sell. I'm a consumer and want to buy your product. How do we transact on that platform, whatever it happens to, whichever platform that happens to be? I guess that's the, that's almost the definition of a marketplace is, or a marketplace versus a platform is who is responsible for generating the traffic. And on an Instagram, a TikTok, a Facebook, whilst they're not traditional marketplaces in the sense of an Amazon or an eBay, you as a retailer or a brand would want to offer your products for sale there because that's where the traffic is already existing. That's where those consumers are shopping that you might not reach via other channels. 
Yeah, and I'll be perfectly honest, there's many of those channels that I don't use myself. I, I'm, I'm not the Instagram generation. I'm not the TikTok generation. But if I'm a brand or retailer, that's where the modern consumer is. People who are generally considerably younger than me, but I don't want to dismiss my generation. We do use social media and messaging. And it's really, the conundrum is, it goes right back to the early days of retail, where if you were a brand, you may open a shop. But it was much better when you were on a high street with a group of shops. And everyone must have been down a high street and thought, my goodness, there's like five shoe shops in a row. And there's a reason for that. It's because when people want to go and buy shoes, there's five shoe shops to choose from. And that's really all a marketplace online is. It's a, a gathering together of multiple businesses. It gives the consumer choice, availability, and a choice of service from different different types of retailers. Um, and the service online might be some have got more favorable returns options. Some might deliver faster. So, some may have economy delivery, but it's free delivery. So if free delivery is important to you, they may be the retailer to choose from. One might be slightly more expensive, but got free delivery. Another might be slightly cheaper, but got paid delivery. Um, both have advantages. Um, free delivery is great if I'm only buying one, but perhaps if I'm buying 10 of something, then paid delivery, I'll just pay one delivery charge and the other nine will be delivered along with it for free. So there's all sorts of advantages in being able to, for consumers to be able to shop around. And the trick is for you to get your proposition right for the consumer today. Um, and the other thing is on the platform um, the, the platforms are a bit like the high street or the shopping mall. They are bringing consumers together um, on a traditional marketplace. I'm thinking sort of the, the Ebays of the world. People pretty much go there to make a purchase. But on other platforms like Instagram, Pinterest, they may be there because they're following their hobby. They're congregating around different boards where people are pinning interesting things that they're interested in. And if they then see something they want to buy, they want to buy it then and there. So you, you, you need to make sure that your idea pins are on Pinterest, for example, are shoppable. Equally, if I contact you on WhatsApp or um, Messenger because I want support, um, maybe I'm ringing up to buy a new washing machine and I don't know which one's going to be best for me. It's fine for your support people to be able to message me and tell me which washing machine is best. It's better if you send me a link that I can click on and make the purchase then and there because then I'm going to do it while I'm talking to you. But the absolute ultimate is to fully engage with that messaging platform. Don't send me a link that's going to take me off to your website to make a purchase. Send me something I can click on and actually purchase right now within WhatsApp or within Messenger or if you're showcasing something on TikTok, make make the video shoppable so I can actually make that purchase then and there. And, and that that's really, I guess, the the big change that's come with retail or internet shopping in the last few years. We've changed from a world where it was acceptable to send someone a link and expect them to click the link and go to your website, force them to open an account and sign up. 
um, force them to type in their credit card details and their delivery address and everything. Whereas what consumers really want is they just want to click, check out, pay, and hopefully all of their credentials for delivery address and payments uh, are already stored on, on that platform. And they can just make the instant purchase, taking as much friction out of the purchase process as possible. Yeah, I guess it's a, at the end of the day, it's about keeping it as simple as possible in that sense. I heard a study which was referenced recently from a behavioral scientist. And I think the study was done in Sweden where it, it was among it was testing opt-in versus opt-out percentages. And it, they did it on a, a group of parents and it was about testing a new, I'm, I'm butchering this, I know, but it was about testing some cool new feature that the school had made available for parents. And they did three different groups. And the first group, they sent them a text message saying, hey, we've got this great new feature. Here's all, here's all the cool things, all the benefits to you as to why you should be on it. Uh, click here if you'd like to opt in. And you'd click here and you'd have to fill in form, which would maybe take 30 seconds. And they had about a 3% sign-up rate. And then the next group received an SMS basically saying, reply to us with the word subscribe if you would like to be opted into this and then we'll do the work. And that got, I think, 8%. But the crazy bit was the opt-out, i.e. the message was, here's this great product. Here's all of these features and benefits to you as the user, the consumer of this product. If you don't want to be opted in, send a reply that says stop. And they only had about 3% of people opted out. So that was a huge amount, a huge increase in the number of people which were then opted in which was disproportionate to the amount of effort that was removed from the process. Because even just 30 seconds of filling in that form, i.e. going to a website and making the purchase versus we're going to send you this package and we'll send you a bill where you have to pay for it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's obviously the, the being able to apply that to e-commerce is not possible sort of one-to-one, -one, but it's an interesting observation in the behavioral science world that speaks mm. to what you were saying. Yeah, and it is removing friction. And to be honest, advertisers have got a, a much tougher job nowadays um, because obviously it, you, you can't just opt people in and send them product and expect it to be paid. But <laughs> even more, you just you can't even just opt them onto your mailing list anymore. Yeah. They've got to actually give permission and subscribe. And, and obviously there are concerns around consumer data collection on what's strictly necessary and what data you should dispose of instantly the transaction has been completed. So and even things like cookie policies and track, tracking cookies are getting less and less useful as regulation increases. And this all comes down to the fact that you are in that tricky position of having to get people to want to consume your content. And that's why it's even more important that when you, you have captured their interest, that you do make the transaction as, as friction-free as mm. possible and enable them just to click one thing or say buy. I, I've even done shopping on my Amazon Alexa before. All I've got to do is Alexa order so-and-so and she'll say, I've added to your shopping list. If you want to complete the purchase, say, buy it now. And if you say, buy it now, then it's ordered and it's being delivered. <laughs> and that, that's got to be the kind of ultimate that you, you, you just shout across the room at a device to order something. That's not great on everything. Um, I tried buying my nephew some Lego on it, and it only offers you sort of here's the top lego item do you want it or not mm. um 
and it, it, trying to narrow it down. There are some things you, you, you do want to do a search for and look at. But equally, if I was on Pinterest or Instagram and I saw a really cool Lego set, nephew's birthday's coming up i just want to buy it i don't want to go searching for it i don't want to necessarily even do price comparison um maybe i will but often um if i'm in a hurry and i just see something and i want to buy it and the price looks good i'm not going to worry too much about could i save a couple of quid here or there if you give me that option to make the instant purchase if you don't make it that frictionless You've done all the work of capturing my interest on the social media site. Maybe you've videoed the product. Maybe you've live-streamed it on TikTok or you've got it on Snapchat or you've pinned it on Pinterest or maybe it's even YouTube. You've done all of that work getting my interest and wanting me to buy that product. But unless you're the brand, if you're a retailer and you don't let me instantly press a button and buy it, all you've done is given me carte blanche to do a quick Google shopping search, find out who's got the best price and availability and go and buy it somewhere else. And even if you are a brand and only you sell that product, um, it's very unlikely you're the only person that sells something exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find a similar third-party brand or a white-label product that would do the job. Um, so even if you've got a really unique widget and you are the brand, so I have to buy it from you, it doesn't mean I can't love the idea and go off to search to see if there's something at a better price point or a similar product that will do the trick. I think that's why it's really important. The more you invest on social platforms or indeed on marketplaces with A-plus content on Amazon or um, creating magnificent listings on eBay or other marketplaces, if you can't make me buy while I'm looking at your page or your listing or your, your pin or your video, um, the, you're in danger that I'll end up buying from one of your competitors. Thank you very much for doing all the work for them, but they got the sale. If somebody's looking for just a pair of standard Nike shoes, they know what they want. They know all the usual suspects where they can go and buy it. You, you said it yourself. There might be five different stores on the high street they could go to. There might be 50 different online websites. Sure, they might have 300 tabs open, but eventually they're going to find that pair of Nike shoes. Where it becomes interesting is in the product is when you don't quite know what you're looking for. And I, I mentioned this to a guy called um, Shah Saki, who's the managing director at Rex Brown. And the, the idea kind of, came up while we were talking of a marketplace almost fueled by something like like a chat GPT, where instead of going onto this marketplace and typing in, hey, I'm looking for a skipping rope, you would go on and you say, I've got this problem and I'm looking for a solution for it. And then having products recommended to you based on that. And that's where it then becomes very interesting because then at that point, brand doesn't matter. Seller doesn't matter. It's, it's supply and demand at its most basic level. This is the solution to that problem this is the product that you need, click here to buy it. And I think that's a very, that would be interesting to see somebody build a marketplace around around that level. But I think we're maybe a few years away from that yet. I think we are, and ChatGPT is very interesting. But I think that's really lending itself to, in, in what's currently available and working, into the, um, the, the kind of messaging apps, whether it be a, a, um, a WhatsApp messenger type conversation or whether it be a, a dropping a, a comment on a post or a pin saying, hey, like this, but what I'm really after is that. 
And it goes back to, you know, the old days when you used to, you, you wanted a washer for your tap and you'd go into a, a, a local independent hardware store and it's a, yep, yeah, yeah, I've got one of those. And he'd reach up onto the top shelf to a dusty old box and fish out the washer for your tap. And it didn't matter what little bit of household gadget you needed, they'd have it in stock. But what you were really paying for then wasn't actually the availability of the stock. It was the knowledge of the shopkeeper who you could say, my tap's dripping, how do I fix it? And he'll say, oh, you need to replace the washer. He'd get a washer, he'd say, what you do is you unscrew the top of the tap and take it off, pop the washer in, put it back together. He'd tell you what to do. And it, it's that kind of real independent knowledge where brands and retailers can win online. And it doesn't matter whether it's a washer for a tap or a car part or even Nike trainers. Um, it's that ability to say, I'm looking for something that will do this or is like this or I saw some Nike trainers and they had an orange flash on instead of a white one or whatever. And that's, yeah, I know which ones those are. It's these. Do you want to buy them? And that's where the, quite frankly, the independent sort of ironmonger shops were horrendously expensive compared mm -hmm. to sort of today's B&Qs or Juicens or Wixes of the world. But people would pay the price because they were getting what they needed and they were problem solving. And that's what's been missing from e-commerce for probably the last 20 years. It's been, here's a product, here's a price, here's a service level, do you want it or not? But there was the, the, the kind of discovery side people have tried to do, but what they've not really addressed is, is the problem-solving side. When you want something, but you don't actually know what it is you, that, you, that you want. I think live chat was an option that a lot of people have tried to use to solve that problem. But the problem with live chat, of course, is that your consumers are generally, broadly speaking, they're shopping in the evenings when your team have already gone home for the day. And they're not going to want to wait until mm -hmm. two o'clock the next day to get a response. They want it there and then. And they want, you know, they don't need to have a, a chat. They don't want to leave an email address. They just want to know which one of the two products they need, they're looking at is the right one for them. Mano Mano have done that well. They've got a good live chat on their website, but it's similar to what you said with the Ironmongery in the sense that you quite often get driven to a product, which is then way more expensive than the same than you can find it on Amazon. So you might, at least I am guilty of using Mano Mano to figure out which product I need, and then I'll go and buy it somewhere else because they've made it easy for me to do that. <laughs> Make it easy to actually complete the transaction when the advice is given is so critical. And I think it also lends itself that there are an awful lot of companies doing really, really fantastic things with product demo videos and how-to guides and content guides. Um, and the way that needs to go that little bit further is instead of here's a product demo of a tin opener, it needs to have keywords and, and, and content that is how do you open a tin of beans? Do you need something to open a tin of beans? Because then when I search for how to open a tin of beans, they'll look, they'll, oh, we've got a great way of doing it. It's this thing called a tin opener. Would you like a manual one or an electric one or a battery one? And I know that's a very sort of sort of banal use case, but when things become more complex and you're talking DIY tools or you're talking car parts or you're talking cookery gadgets, it's like I'm, I may not be looking for an air fryer, but I may be searching for how can I cook a roast dinner without using less energy or what's the cheapest way of doing Sunday lunch? And 
you need to pop up with a, a video, a Snapchat, a Pinterest saying the cheapest way of doing Sunday lunch is to use our air fryer. Mm-hmm. And then you've got me because I'm probably going to buy your air fryer. I'm not necessarily going to then go and search the web for other air fryers because you've solved my problem. You've captured my attention. You just need to make sure that I can just click and purchase, not click a link and go and browse your website and get distracted by other models, not click a link, find out what it is, and then Google to see if anyone's selling it cheaper. As soon as you send me off to another site, even if that other site is your website, you're giving me options then to go and look elsewhere. If the option you give me is click here and it'll be delivered tomorrow, that's a really powerful capturing of the consumer. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether I'm on Amazon or eBay or Mano Mano or whether I'm on TikTok, Snapchat, Pinterest. It doesn't matter where I am. Give me that option to click and purchase and keep me in that purchase funnel right up to the point that you've got my money and you're going to deliver the item so i want to change gear a little bit because you you referred previously to the old days of retail i'd like to look at the old days of e-commerce because this is where you cut your teeth before you founded tame bay and brought it over to channel x you were an ebay seller and at Marketplace Jungle, the yeah. core focus here is really to bring some content to marketplace sellers that isn't focused on Amazon. And I'm aware that you've not been a seller for a few years now, but it's not exactly like you haven't had your finger in the pulse of what's been happening. But can, can you tell me how you got started selling on eBay? Because I don't know your origins. Yeah, well, th- that was quite simple. I was in the process of buying a house. I paid the deposit and the solicitor's fees and given them like thousands and thousands of pounds. Two weeks before I completed, I got made redundant and I forgot to tell the mortgage company because technically I was employed until two weeks after because I was work- had a month's notice. Um, so two weeks after my house completed and I'd not told them, so I'd not lost my deposit and the solicitor's fees, I then had a bit of a problem because I had my last paycheck. So I actually did some hunting around and I had a contact who had some Herman Muller chairs in an office clearance they were doing. And back in the day, those things were worth sort of six, seven, eight hundred quid. And he said, look, sell as many as you can. I'll give you 10% commission. Well, that wasn't bad because sell 10, 800 quid, that would cover the mortgage and a a bit of food. Wasn't enough to live off, but it didn't take long before I realised that eBay was a really good place for selling things and started buying and trading in refurbished computer equipment. In those days, it was fantastic because a, it's the normal sort of lease hire IT world where big companies, if you work for the BBC, Yellow Page, even if you work for eBay themselves, you'd be given a laptop and three years later, they'd come and take it away and give you another one, whether it was broken or needed or not. They just refurb their IT every three years. And in those days, it was a very buoyant business because your laptop might come with a floppy disk and you may want to upgrade to a CD drive or you had a CD drive, you wanted a CD writer or you wanted a DVD drive. And again, in those days, laptops came, you were lucky if you got an Ethernet port, but you probably didn't have a modem port. And then later it was, uh, uh, you wanted Wi-Fi or sometimes you'd want a GSM, a mobile SIM card for your laptop just to connect it. And there were still many laptops in those days that didn't have an Ethernet port. So if you wanted to get on the internet, you had to have an Ethernet port. All of these bits in those days were add-ons for laptops. They were hot swap removable. 
So I did a roaring trade in, in, in those types of things, selling Wi-Fi cards to people that had bought a modem card off me a year before or an Ethernet card. And the business was great, but it got so big that it was my full-time job. I never actually looked for another job again. We started what was then Tame Bay, now Channel X. And it then got to the point that I had to make a choice. Do I carry on doing Channel X full-time or do I carry on being a marketplace seller full-time because it wasn't possible to do both? And I had to make a choice and I I chose to do the the Channel X side. Frankly, I was getting bored with being a one-man business, selling and shipping and buying stock all on my own Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day grind. And it looked like a new opportunity and a fun opportunity I instantly missed selling because I lost half my income. <laughs> Did you sell? No, no. I just uh, r- r- ran it down and disposed of the stock in job lots and closed it down. And it, b- because I was doing second hand, it, it wasn't really a business that had value for selling. I didn't have my own product or anything. So once the stock was gone, the stock was gone, unless you were going to go. And hunt out for some more but it was very valuable and over the years of selling on marketplaces and then since then buying on marketplaces i went through the whole world of like when ebay insisted that all tech products should have free shipping for example which was a big change and as i referred to a bit earlier um it was great if you only buy one product because the price you see is the price you see but i had customers that on ebay might buy 10 or 20 of something at one time And if you'd included carriage, that made it a significantly more expensive deal. Like if you sold a power supply for £8 with £2 carriage, that's fine. When it goes to free carriage, you're calling it a tenner. But if you're buying 10 of them, you could buy 10 of them and maybe it would be five quick carriage for a courier rather than the post. Mm. I'd be forced to, instead of charging a fiver, if it's free post and it's a tenner, then they're going to pay 100 quid for them. (laughs) So I constantly have people come and trying to negotiate price saying, look, what's the best price you can do if I buy 10 or what's the best price if you can do it if I buy 20? And the one size fits all model really wasn't working well. And eBay and other sites have rolled it back now, the free post mandate and given more options. They may well highlight products in search which have free posts because that's what most people want. But they at least give you the option now of having a chargeable post or a free post And indeed, you can even get the premium service badge on your listing by having a free post option. But equally, you you could also have a charged option for people that want it in a hurry next day. And they've got merchandising options now where you can buy one and it's £10, buy five and it's £9 each, buy 10 and it's £8 each. So you can kind of build in the free post discounts by giving bulk options. And that's especially important for products where you're going to buy a a large quantity. So, for instance, if you're buying, I don't know, laminate floor, it's unlikely you're ever going to want to buy one pack. You probably don't want to give a discount to someone that buys two packs because you know what, that's quite a small floor. But if someone wants to buy 10 packs, you could give them a discount. If they buy 20 packs, you could give them a discount. Uh, The same with, say, for instance, garden fence panels. If you've had one panel come down in a storm, you may only want one panel. But most people's gardens, if they're doing a, a, a length of fencing down the garden, they probably want, what are they, six-foot panels? They might want six of them or ten of them. So maybe you start giving a discount for if you buy more than ten 
to encourage people to maybe I'll do the bottom of my garden as well as the side. So there's, there's lots more options now. And also service levels and expectations have changed. The main reason I really had to shut my business down instead of doing it alongside Channel X was service levels. In the old days, I could get away with shipping on a Monday, Wednesday and a Friday. But expectations of e-commerce are that you buy it today, it'll arrive tomorrow. Or at least if you buy it today, it'll be dispatched tomorrow if it's not dispatched today. And if I was off at conferences or had meetings or something and I couldn't get in the office for a couple of days, I just couldn't ship things. So it just wasn't practical to do both. And those service expectations have changed massively. It's a surprise if you buy something and it's not shipped within 24 hours, even if it's on a, a, an economy delivery and it's not going to arrive for two or three days. The days of buy it on a Monday and you'd be lucky if the seller got it in the post on a Friday and then it'll be arriving middle of the next week are well and truly gone. Do you think um, that's a good or a bad it, thing? I think it's both. I think it's a good thing because the services are quite frankly there to do this nowadays. So no matter how big or small a seller you are, if you're doing it full time, there's absolutely no excuse that if I buy something from you now that you don't ship it by this time tomorrow. Delivery have also massively increased in speed. I was, you probably don't even remember this, but anyone that remembers Royal Mail parcels, which was the bizarre service where they gave you a barcode on your receipt, but no one could ever track the barcode and nothing ever happened with it. It was Royal Mail standard parcels in those days. Now we've got track 24, track 48, um, Hermes used to be a five-day service. Then it kind of went to a three-day service. But many things delivered by Hermes, or as they're now known as Every, um, you'll find it's a next-day service. So the, the, the kind of economy deliveries have gone out of the door. No one really offers what used to be economy three- to five-day service anymore. I think a lot um, of it is... Apart from the Royal Mail with the second-class post, and then they got... The, 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 they're not even delivering that reliably at the moment. But uh, apart from that, um, the, the, I remember the options when I was using Parcel Force as it happened. There was a Parcel Force 24 and a Parcel Force 48. They don't even want to sell the 48 anymore, really. There's very little difference in price. It was about 50p back in those days. It's not much different now. But realistically, all they do with a Parcel Force 48 is just hold it in a depot overnight before they can be bothered to put it on a truck and take it out. Half the time it'll arrive in 24 hours anyway. It's just if they're, they're busy or if they, they can delay it if they need to. When was the last time anyone had a 48-hour delivery from DPD, for example? It's all 24 hours. So the service levels are basically available the only thing that you can do to slow service down nowadays is not to ship it today or not to ship it tomorrow and to take three days to pick and pack it. And there's no real excuse for that. Expectations are, are much, much higher. And I think it's, frankly, absolutely amazing. I'm old enough that my first – it wasn't even an internet purchase, so I can't really call it e-commerce, but my first remote remote distance selling purchase um, was back in the days where they would promise you a delivery 
within 28 working days, and that was after you'd been to the post office, bought a postal order and shipped it to them, which would take a couple of days. And so in my lifetime, we've gone from not 28 days delivery, by the way, that's 28 working days, which is about a month and a half after they receive your order that you'll actually get your goods. Um, And we've gone from 28 working days to delivery to next day and sometimes same day. And if you're really, really desperate and you live in the right place, sometimes within an hour or two, you can make a purchase and it'll turn up on your doorstep. And um, frankly, I just think it's... um, the service levels that are available are not only amazing, but I'm thrilled they're available to me and uh, that, that I can make use of them. I've never tested this theory, but I've I've wondered a few times if the under-promise, over-deliver philosophy could play a role here in the sense that it's all expectation management. And if you've managed to convince a consumer not to buy through their Amazon Prime subscription, but to come to your website to buy the product. If instead of them believing they're going to get the product next day or, you know, in two or three days or whatever the case may be, if you can tell them, yeah, it'll be with you in three days, but you get it to them in two days, if that's actually a better experience than if you told them two days and it had arrived two days. And I'm I'm wondering if you've ever seen any evidence around that frankly the under promise no deliver uh, over deliver is a tactic that many on marketplaces use because they are constantly scared of failing to meet their obligations and being dinged on their selling metrics mm-hmm. the reality is it's very difficult for two reasons and first of all if i really want something in a hurry and you're telling me it's going to take three or four days to arrive i'm just not going to buy off you i'll find someone else to buy off so you, you need to be a bit realistic. But what's much more important than whether you choose to get it to be next day, two day, three day, is for me to have tracking information and certainty when it's going to arrive. Um, the, the interesting term is obviously Wismo, where is my item? That's the last thing you want your customer service people being held up on. They should be on TikTok doing videos or on WhatsApp answering messages. They shouldn't be doing where's my parcel. Um, there are f- very few service nowadays that aren't tracked. So supply tracking, in which case there is not a blind bit of use under promising to over deliver because the minute you give them tracking, they can see it's coming tomorrow. Mm. So they're not going to be surprised it's arrived a day early. They're going to know it's arrived a day early, about 15 minutes after they've placed the order and you told them <laughs> it's going to arrive early after told them it was two days. And the other thing is for those sellers who on sites like eBay are worried about their metrics. So they say, you know what, realistically, I'm going to ship it today if I can or tomorrow at latest, and I'm going to put it on a 24-hour delivery so I'll say a two-day handling time and a 48-hour delivery because that gives me four days. And if something goes wrong, then at least I won't get metrics dinged because I'll have delivered it by the time I promised I would. That really doesn't work anymore. And the reason it doesn't work is because marketplaces have all of the data. They have access to the tracking. In some cases, and especially like eBay actually insert their own tracking numbers into the address. So even if you ship it on a non-tracked service, they pick up the tracking through their eBay tracking numbers from the likes of Royal Mail. They know how quickly you ship. They know how quickly it's delivered. And if you promise something within four days and eBay say that you see that you habitually deliver within two days, they will just display a two-day delivery expectation to your customer anyway. Because they know it's going to, 99%, it'll be there in two days. 
So there's no point adding days in because marketplaces are intelligent enough that their automated system will just strip out the extra days and give a realistic delivery expectation. So I think the, the two things that are important are a realistic expectation, an honest expectation, and tracking because then the consumer knows where the parcel is. And you know what? If they really wanted it in two days and it takes three days, but you gave them tracking 15 minutes after they placed the order, they'll live with it. They'll blame the courier. Flipping this courier or stupid that courier, let me down again. Lovely retailer shipped on time. I can see the tracking. I can see it's just sat in the courier depot. It's not out for delivery. I'm cross. I might ring the courier. But Mr. Retailer or Mrs. Retailer, I'm not blaming you because you did your job. But because I got because I've got the tracking, I can see that you did your job, and I can see I was hoping today, but it's been delayed. So in that scenario you described before, a retailer on eBay, they've got this artificially inflated four-day window for getting the item to the consumer. If eBay, in this example, strips out that extra time, they say it's going to be two days, and then everything goes wrong, and the four days is actually what was needed. Is that going to affect the seller metrics? Is, is, is it's not going to affect there? the seller metrics, but it's going to be an unhappy customer. And Frank, you'd be better off telling him it's going to be two days and then it takes four because you've shipped it on time. Because if you ship it on time, once eBay get the first tracking saying, yes, it's in the post, it's with the courier, they'll protect you from any bad feedback or... Uh, negative detailed seller ratings on the delivery day anyway, because eBay recognised that sometimes couriers mess up. Mm. Um, a van blur, uh, burns down, the, the, the depot shuts early, or it misses the, the, the trunk, or it gets misdelivered to the wrong depot. eBay will protect you from all of that, so long as they've got the first tracking event saying, yep, they bought it at two o'clock today. It was shipped at four o'clock. We've got the courier pickup or the scan at the local depot. If the courier then takes three days to deliver it, your metrics are safe as houses because you've had that first scan in the network. So not only should you not add in extra time, but if you upload tracking information to the marketplace, nine times out of ten, you'll have more protection than if you, did, if you didn't upload the tracking. Mm. True. No, that's good. I think that's comparable, with, obviously, with Amazon's FBA, where they will where they will take on responsibility yeah. for any complaints for, for their logistics. That's good to know that other marketplaces handle that as well. That that's obviously a concern for people that are looking at non Amazon marketplaces. On that topic, non Amazon marketplaces. This is a, a growing list. Now, I remember it was a few years ago. A, the Tesco. Fast uh, sorry. A fast expanding list. Yeah, very fast expanding. Yeah, absolutely. I remember it was a few years ago that the Tesco marketplace was, for many UK sellers, really well performing. And then from one day to the next, it disappeared again. And that meant that a lot of businesses lost a not insignificant amount of revenue that they might have been planning on. And these retailer-operated marketplaces, the you know the B and Qs, the decathlons. I don't know. There, there's Debenham's so many of them. Super drug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The list in the UK alone is endless, and then here in Europe, Lady Sport. <laughs> the, 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 the list grows almost daily. Yeah, and obviously that's enabled so, by the, great technology like Miracle. 
which does make it easy for a retailer to become a marketplace and for for them to quickly add a large number of SKUs to their range, which caters to their existing traffic. But there is always that risk that that marketplace might not be there in a few days or a few weeks or a few months time. We saw that uh, yesterday at the time of recording, the Otto Group in Germany announced that they were closing the MyToys marketplace, which the yeah, MyToys... We saw it with Tesco's, we saw it with Halford's. Um, that there are any number of marketplaces that come and go. So there, there, there are two things here. First of all, there is a massive opportunity with everyone from B&Q in the sort of home and garden to Debenhams in the fashion and beauty and home to Boots and Superdrug in the kind of beauty, cosmetics and general cleanliness and and, and um uh, I don't want to say medical because obviously not drugs, but um, bandages, plasters, nappies, sanitary products, etc. There are any number of marketplaces springing up and you absolutely should be looking at them and making a decision on which of these is a good fit for your product search because they basically have a different products, uh, different consumer segment of the population to eBay, Amazon, and any of the other marketplaces. So B&Q, for example, um, if you're going into B&Q stores and doing your DIY, there's a good chance you'll have done some research on the B&Q website and maybe you'll have found a marketplace product that you haven't. Debenhams is a name that goes back over two centuries. Um, Okay, they're not on the high street anymore, but they have a following that have been very, very loyal Debenhams customers for decades, lifetimes in some some instances. And again, they might be a different segment of the, the market to those that are shopping on eBay or Amazon. Um, and by the way, it's not just people my age that have shopped at Debenhams for years. They do have younger demographic on there mm-hmm. as, as well. But again, this is a demographic that have decided they want to shop at Debenhams. And, and they may not want to shop at Amazon. They may not have Amazon Prime. They may w- not want to shop at eBay, but they've chosen to shop at Debenhams. The likes of JD Sports, for example, have a loyal following. Uh, Boots and Superdrug, they have people that go in and out of their shops and probably also a significant number order online from time to time. So these are all opportunities for you. The downside, as you say, when Halford's Tesco's or My Toys or any other marketplaces stops either closes their marketplaces or the entire business goes is that that could lose you a significant proportion of your your income and you may actually have purchased stock specifically for that marketplace well heads up the same can happen with amazon or ebay if you upset amazon too much they will have no compunction in just closing your account tomorrow um so it may not be that the marketplace stops trading, but it may be they stop you trading on their marketplace, which is their right if they don't like the way you've been conducting business. It's harsh, and for most businesses, losing their Amazon business would be catastrophic. The same eBay probably is a, a sizable chunk of their business as well. And the name of the game is diversify. Don't have all of your eggs in one basket. Don't have them in the Amazon basket. And that's probably why you're listening to this podcast today, because you're looking for alternatives to Amazon. Mm-hmm. 
but don't just stick with eBay as well, or Mano Mano, or B&Q, or Debenhams, or Superdrug. There are hundreds of marketplaces out there today that you can trade on, and you should be trading on them as many as are applicable for your product set that it makes sense for you to be able to manage. And that's where multi-channel software comes in and the likes of Miracle Connect, which makes it very easy for you to find new marketplaces to sell on if they're on the Miracle platform. But there are many other marketplaces, especially around Europe, places like Bol.com, Cdiscount, Laradu. There are any number of marketplaces that may be worth consideration. And spreading it out and have, not having all of your eggs in the Amazon basket is definitely the way to go. You, you will almost certainly lose marketplaces that you currently trade on one day. The more marketplaces you're, you're on, the less that losing that one marketplace is going to hurt. I think we've seen it with, with MyToys specifically in the sense that there is a successful marketplace, but it's only a part of that overall retail business. And any business where you're only going to get 15% of what's coming through the door is only as sustainable as that. I mean, it, you need to have a lot coming through the door if 15% of it is going to keep you afloat. And, you know, you've got 800 plus employees at a company <laughs> the size of my toys. So, you know, the day-to-day -day costs of keeping that afloat are going to be quite high. I think the the message there, though, being to diversify and to get into as many marketplaces as possible is true. I like to say as well, specifically with Amazon, the seller should be aiming to have as many non-Amazon marketplaces in their portfolio as possible so that Amazon is it, or no marketplace, no individual channel is yeah. representing more than about 40% of the overall pie. And let's be serious. <clears throat> Amazon has grown massively. And for many, many online retailers, Amazon is 50% or higher mm -hmm. than the proportion of their business today. Sometimes and that is massive. And that means that if you lose Amazon, you're pretty much out of business. However, you may look at other marketplaces and think they're not going to very, add very much. I've spoken to people that have added Bol in in Europe, and it's added maybe 5% to their business. The same is true of Frugo. It's added 5 or 6% turnover to their business. But if you suddenly add 10 of these marketplaces, and they all add 5%, and some may be considerably more, but let's be conservative, they all add 5% to your business. Well, by the time you've added 10 of them, you've just added 50% to your business. If you add 10 of them, you've added 100% to your business. If at that stage you lose Amazon, you're losing a quarter to a third of your business. You're not losing 50% to 90% of your business. Absolutely. But I think that's the way to look at it. These marketplaces, they may not be as big as Amazon. You may find out that for certain product lines, some of these marketplaces are miles better than Amazon because of their specific audience and sell-through rates. And, and, and can't say it enough times, diversifying and splitting your sales across multiple sites rather than relying on one has got to be the safest way to build a robust business for the future. So final question, Chris, on that note, if you were running a, a marketplace business today and you were looking at this big list of marketplaces that you could be expanding your business into, what would be your top channels that you would be looking into beyond Amazon and eBay? Well, Amazon and eBay for those in the UK are kind of default must-haves. In Europe, it's not quite the same. So when you start looking beyond Amazon and eBay, you need to start thinking about not which are the best marketplaces, because none of them are best, none of them are worse, 
but which ones are the best fit for your business and which ones are going to be the most easy to integrate with and make a difference the fastest. So if, for instance, you're using multi-channel management software, does your choice of multi-channel management support the platform that you want to sell on? Is the platform you want to sell on English or in English language, I should say, which is where somewhere like eChameleon might help? If you have, for instance, already integrated with one miracle marketplace, then it's a lot easier to integrate with additional miracle marketplaces. So does the prospective platform operate on miracle or are they using a different platform? The most important thing is to do your research and find out if there is likely to be demand for your product on the marketplace. And if you have to, start listing manually and do a couple of months of manual selling before you do a full integration if you absolutely have to but most people be able to integrate nowadays and then it's a case of assessing where the opportunity is do you just want to sell uk are you comfortable selling europe should you be looking further afield what is the resource going to be to adopt abc marketplaces and how many of them have you got the time and resources to do And it very simply becomes down to you've got your list, you've looked at the integration and tech stacks of the marketplace and know where you want to be. And it may just be, look, I've not integrated with Miracle before. It's too difficult, but this one's already on my multi-channel management software, so I can do it at the click of a button. The one thing you shouldn't do is pick 10 marketplaces and click on them all to open tomorrow because there is a learning curve and you just won't be able to handle it unless you've got a massive team and a, a different different parts of the team all focusing on a different marketplace. But if you've got a smaller team, you want to do one at a time. And when you're comfortable with it, then add the next. And get some expert advice. Go and speak to someone that either works at the multi-channel management solution or is an industry consultant and, and get some advice on which one is best for you. But narrow it down, as I say, look at the tech side, the opportunity side, the logistics side and any translation, localization, payment side. And it will soon become very obvious which one you should be looking at first. One point I'd also add at the end there is also the legal side, because if you are expanding into other countries beyond the Brexit-related issues, there's also other issues to do with certain marketplaces like Bol.com, which requires you to have a business entity in the Netherlands, And Otto, for example, and many other German marketplaces require you to have at least an EU entity, if not a German entity. So there's also that side of things to to factor in. But again, as you say, it's often a case of looking at the traffic, not specifically of the marketplace as a whole, but related for your category or for your product type. Because regardless of how good the B&Q marketplace might perform, if you're selling sports shoes, you're probably not going to do very well there, but decathlon might be a better opportunity for you. Cool. Chris, well, look, I think we can we can call it a day there. That's been uh, no end of, of incredible information, and it's been really nice to have the opportunity to pick your brains on this. So I hope we can do it again in the future. And, yeah, thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks, Jess. As I mentioned to Chris at the start of the conversation, TameBay was my first resource when I was learning about marketplaces for the first time, almost 10 years ago. So this was a special one for me, and I hope you got as much out of it as I did. 
Chris continues to be a fountain of knowledge for all things marketplaces, so if you haven't already, make sure you sign up to the daily newsletter from Channel X so you're always up to date. If you're interested in selling on any of the marketplaces that we talked about, do feel free to get in touch with me on LinkedIn to find out how eChameleon can help you expand beyond Amazon. In the meantime, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in. I'll see you next time. Bye.